Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, December 8th, 2023. For the weather forecast today, we have highs in the mid-40s, sunny to partly cloudy, and not as cold as the past few days. Tonight, it will get down to 34, mainly clear with rising temperatures. Saturday looks beautiful, Sunday the rain comes back, and both days the highs will reach into the 50s, and the lows High 40s, low 50s. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's midday drawing of the numbers game, the numbers were 1, 5, 0, and 5. For the evening drawing that day, we have numbers 5, 1, 2, and 0. Thursday's mass cash drawing numbers were 8, 10, 26, 30, and 34. The Powerball drawing on Wednesday had numbers 2, 12, 37, 56, 65, and the extra ball of 21. And finally, for the Mega Millions drawing that was held on Tuesday, we have numbers 18, 35, 40, 64, 67 in the extra ball of number 18. Page one of today's newspaper has several large photos. One is of several gentlemen holding a wreath, and the caption reads, At a Pearl Harbor Day ceremony Thursday morning at Smuggler's Beach in Yarmouth, World War II Marine veteran Robert Childs is escorted down the boardwalk by Navy veteran Steve Silkowski with a wreath that they threw into the water after a short ceremony. A wreath was also placed at the Pearl Harbor Memorial at the beach. Cape Cod Marine Corps League Detachment 125 hosted the ceremony. For the other photograph, the caption reads, Marine veterans and members of the Cape Cod Marine Corps League Detachment 125, Bill Crichton, Tad Duarte, Richard Waywell, and Tim Brosnan salute during the playing of taps at the end of Thursday's ceremony. The photograph shows all of the men in matching red jackets and caps saluting. Needy Fund Helps Yarmouth Man Secure Stable Housing by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times. His landlord decided to sell the property. This was rough news for a Yarmouth neighbor living with a disability who had called the place home for years. Finding stable and affordable housing on Cape Cod is incredibly challenging any time of the year, but this unfortunate event happened during the summer, making the task even harder. For a while, he lived in motels, but he worked hard to find new housing and his admirable persistence paid off. He secured a new rental, and the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund was there to help, with assistance that smoothed the way to a stable future. The Needy Fund also pointed the way to services and programs that would help him manage ongoing expenses. Thanks to generous contributions from donors like you, our neighbor has a secure place to live and access to resources that will help him thrive. What is the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund? The nonprofit Cape Cod Times Needy Fund has provided emergency financial assistance to thousands of Cape Codders and Islanders since 1936. That assistance is made possible because of the continued generosity of neighbors helping neighbors. The Needy Fund provides short-term emergency assistance to Cape and Islands residents so they can continue to go to work and or stay in their homes. 
People in need submit their requests for help to the Needy Fund, which in turn pays for goods or services, a medical bill for example, through a voucher system. No cash is given to Needy Fund recipients. Donations, which are tax deductible, may be made online at the needyfund.org/donate. Checks payable to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund should be mailed to the Needy Fund, PO Box 36 in Hyannis. Those needing assistance from the Needy Fund may contact them at 800-422-1446. The fundraising goal this season is $1.6 million and every donation helps. Thanks to everyone who has made a donation to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund. The total contributions to date, $323,206.03. Officer, utility worker, killed in crash, man arrested in police chase. By Gabe Hawari of USA Today. A man is in custody in Massachusetts after striking and killing a Waltham police officer and a National Grid utility worker with a car on Wednesday, authorities said. Two other National Grid utility workers were injured in the crash. The suspect, identified as Peter Simon, age 54, of Woodsville, New Hampshire, has been charged with two counts of manslaughter and armed robbery. According to the Middlesex County District Attorney's Office, Simon was driving a pickup truck eastbound on Totten Pound Road in Waltham when he pulled to the side of the road and suddenly turned back into the roadway in an attempt to execute a U-turn. Simon then continued driving for approximately a quarter mile before fatally striking Waltham police officer Paul Tracy, age 58, of Waltham, and the utility worker identified as a 36-year-old man from Cambridge. Tracy was working police detail on a National Grid worksite at the time of the crash, the Middlesex County DA's office said in a news release. After striking the victims, Simon continued on, striking multiple other vehicles before abandoning his truck and fleeing on foot. While running, Simon encountered another Waltham police officer who had responded to the scene and allegedly pulled a knife on the officer before stealing his police car and fleeing. Simon crashed the cruiser and fled on foot once again, but was apprehended by Waltham police after a brief foot chase, the Middlesex County DA's office said. This is an active investigation being conducted by the Middlesex District Attorney's Office, Waltham Police, and Massachusetts State Police Detectives assigned to the District Attorney's Office, according to the Middlesex DA's office. Facing Hiring Challenges, Wellfleet Welcomes Five New Municipal Workers by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Wellfleet. The town has welcomed five officials into the administrative fold, no easy task when municipal recruiters are dealing with a dearth of candidates attributed to generational turnover and the high cost of housing. Recruiting for the municipal workforce has become more and more challenging over the last few years, said Adam Chapdelaine, Executive Director and CEO of the Massachusetts Municipal Association. Chapdelaine was a town manager for Arlington for 10 years and has worked in various capacities with the association for even longer. He attributes the shortage of experienced municipal workers to two things primarily, generational turnover and the housing crisis. Long-serving finance, planning, and public works personnel are retiring 
or aging out of the workforce, and there's a dearth of qualified people to take their places, Chapdelaine said. The problem has been a long time coming, and its impact is being felt in all of the Commonwealth's 351 municipalities, he said. In Wellfleet, an assistant town administrator, treasurer, health agent, conservation agent, building commissioner, and building health and conservation administrative assistant have either started their new jobs or are in the midst of finishing up details of employment, according to town administrator Rich Waldo. An accountant position is still open. On December 20th, Police Chief Michael Hurley will retire. The select board has offered the position to Deputy Chief Kevin LaRocco, contingent on successful contract negotiations, Waldo said. Wellfleet has had significant turnover in high-level positions over the last several years. It struggled through long gaps without executive personnel, difficult software upgrades, accounting problems, and scathing state audits. Between 2014 and 2022, Wellfleet had five town administrators before Waldo was hired. Since 2018, the assistant town administrator position and the treasurer position each changed hands four times. Silvio Janao began working as assistant town administrator on October 23rd. Janao was most recently the director of public works in Eastham. He has a bachelor's in engineering and a master's in public policy. Waldo said Janao's years of municipal sector experience have already had a positive impact on the town. The treasurer's job, vacant since July, was filled by Jared Aponte, who has worked in municipal finance since 2015. He and his father opened Aponte & Aponte, a municipal finance consulting firm, in 2022. The elder Aponte is a Massachusetts municipal accountant and has more than 20 years of public service experience. Jared has a bachelor's degree in business administration. The town has worked out an arrangement for Aponte to work one to two days a week in town and the rest remotely, Waldo said. Alex Williams, who filled in as interim treasurer, will stay on to assure a smooth transition, Waldo said. There were few applicants for treasurer, according to Waldo. He chalked that up to the regional shortage of experienced municipal financial candidates. To help fill that void, the Massachusetts Municipal Association has partnered with Suffolk University to build a better pipeline to local government. The association and Suffolk officer, uh, the association and Suffolk offer a certificate program in local government leadership and management, a finance management seminar, and a municipal fellowship program. Two cohorts have graduated, and a third is in the process. Chapdelaine said. Rounding out the new hires in Wellfleet are Heath Martinez as health agent, Beth Piles as conservation agent, Angelo Salamone as building commissioner, and Gary Locke as building, health, and conservation agent administrator assistant. Martinez has a background in health and sanitary science, is a licensed dietitian and nutritionist with the Bureau of Public Health, and has worked for years in the food safety and compliance industry, Waldo said. He started October 30th. Piles was an attorney specializing in land use for different agencies in Boston and Phoenix. Waldo commended her ability to combine knowledge of state and local compliance with policy expertise. She started November 6th. Salamone, who has been interim building commissioner since August, 
is a certified local inspector and is working towards certification as a building commissioner. Angelo has proven that he can adapt to the local culture of Wellfleet and understands the role of the job, Waldo said. Waldo expects Locke's knowledge and experience to greatly improve the workflow between agents, including the building commissioner. He can perform field inspections and review Title V septic plans. Refill, reuse, refillable dry goods market to open in Dennis next year. By Zane Razek of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline East Dennis. Just under 5% of more than 51 million tons of plastic waste produced by U.S. households in 2021 was successfully recycled, according to an October 2022 report by environmental nonprofit Greenpeace. The daunting figures inspired many to rethink how to cut out single-use plastic, including Megan Lazat. She's the owner of The Glass Jar, Cape Cod's new refillable dry goods market set to open in mid-January. It's an old way of shopping that we're bringing back, said Lazat. General stores used to be like this, and we get to revive it a bit. This will be Lazat's first business. She has a background in veterinary medicine and management, and worked for almost 15 years at Veterinary Associates of Cape Cod in Yarmouth. How do refill shops work? Shelves at the dentist market will be stocked with pantry staples, such as flour, oats, rice, and pasta, and will especially highlight local names, like Beanstalk Coffee in Eastham. Customers can either bring their own container, buy a jar while there, or grab a free paper bag before filling it with product. Containers will be weighed before and after with the weight of the empty container deducted from the weight of the filled container to ensure customers pay only for the product itself. Shoppers are encouraged to bring in any kind of container as long as it's clean, dry, and sealable. I want everyone to really feel comfortable to bring anything. This is not to hit perfection. This is just to improve things, said Lazat. With any plastic that's created, we might as well use it over and over and over again. Green Road Refill in Brewster, which provides home goods in a similar model, will also hold a pop-up at the store as well, so people can refill products like laundry detergent, shampoo, and conditioner. Located at the Route 6A Players Plaza, owned by 7-Eleven, the store previously housed a locksmith. After signing the lease, Lazat began transforming the space into the glass jar. Extra floorboards were used to help create the cash register booth, and she'll offset her electricity bill by using credits she's accumulated due to solar panels on her house. We're really trying to hit all the marks to keep everything affordable and help the mom down the street who can't buy groceries, said Lazat. When do winners of Iowa caucuses surge? by Katie Aiken of the Des Moines Register. Former President Donald Trump has overshadowed the Republican presidential race for 2024, but an analysis of Iowa poll data for every state caucus since 1984 suggests it's not too late for another candidate to surge. In an October Des Moines Register, NBC News, Mediacom, Iowa poll, 43% of likely Republican caucus goers chose Trump as their first choice for president, putting him 27 percentage points ahead of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor and United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley. 
Despite facing 91 criminal charges, Trump has only widened his lead in the race. But Trump's rivals insist they can still win Iowa. Governor Kim Reynolds, who endorsed DeSantis, told reporters in November that Iowa breaks late, and DeSantis has potential to win. And Haley has pushed her Iowa crowds to rally their friends and family to support her on caucus night, emphasizing that a strong caucus finish is essential for her to overtake Trump in the South Carolina primary. Pollster J. Ann Seltzer, president of Seltzer & Company, which conducted the Iowa poll, said she's learned to never say never about the caucuses. We've seen unexpected changes in poll standings in the very last days of polling ahead of the caucuses, Seltzer told the Register. Donald Trump's lead looks insurmountable, but you won't hear this data geek say it's a lock. When do winners in the Iowa caucuses typically surge in the polls? First place finishers for the past five Iowa caucuses, with the exception of Hillary Clinton in 2016, all surged to the lead sometime in the final months before the caucuses from November through January. In the crowded 2020 Democratic contest, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg took the lead in a November 2019 Iowa poll, with 25% of likely Democratic caucus goers naming him as their first choice. But with just weeks before caucus day, U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders jumped ahead in the Iowa poll, winning 20% support from likely caucus goers. Buttigieg fell to third place in the poll with 16%. Ultimately, Buttigieg and Sanders were virtually tied after that hectic caucus night. Buttigieg won 26.2% of caucus goers, and Sanders won 26.1%. On the other side of the aisle, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz leaped to the top of the race in the final two months before the competitive 2016 Republican caucuses. Cruz was polling comfortably near the rest of the pack in the summer of 2015, though he lagged significantly behind early favorites Dr. Ben Carson, a neurosurgeon, and Trump. In the October 2015 Iowa poll, 10% of likely Republican caucus goers chose Cruz as their first choice putting him in third place. Cruz's support skyrocketed to 31% in the December 2015 Iowa poll, overtaking both Trump and Carson. Although Cruz's support faltered somewhat in the final weeks before caucus night, he won the Republican 2016 Iowa caucuses with 27.6% of the vote. However, a sudden jump in the Iowa poll does not guarantee lasting momentum for a candidate. In the 2012 race, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich shot to 25% and first place in a November Iowa poll of likely Republican caucus goers. His lead disappeared by the end of December, and Gingrich was a distant fourth on caucus night. Each presidential cycle is different, but here's how past caucus victors have fared in Des Moines Register Iowa polls. Hillary Clinton stayed at the top of 2015 and 2016 Iowa polls, as rival Bernie Sanders climbed steadily closer. Clinton eked out a narrow victory over Sanders on caucus night. Rick Santorum was tied for sixth place in November 2011. He shot up in the December poll to 15%, though he still lagged behind leaders Ron Paul and Mitt Romney. His late momentum carried through caucus night, when he was virtually tied with Romney for first place, and later was declared the winner. Mike Huckabee surged in the November 2007 Iowa poll from third place with 
to first place with 29%. The poll was published in early December, one month before Huckabee won the Iowa caucuses with 34.4% of the vote. Barack Obama led the Iowa poll for the first time in November 2007, with 26% of likely caucus goers marking him as their first choice. He widened his lead over opponents Clinton and John Edwards in the late December poll, ultimately winning the caucuses by a nearly eight percentage point margin. John Kerry in third place in November 2003, behind Democratic leaders Howard Dean and Dick Gephardt. He leaped to first in a January 2004 poll from 15% to 26% and then won the caucuses. Former President Trump's candidacy has thrown the Iowa caucuses playbook into question. His rivals in the race need to not only introduce themselves to Iowans, but also make a case for why they would be a better choice than Trump, who continues to lead by double digits in polling nationwide. But the high expectations for Trump's campaign in the 2024 Iowa caucuses may present their own challenges, according to longtime former Des Moines Register political reporter and columnist David Yepsen. If he's a weak winter, if most of the vote is going elsewhere to other candidates, that's going to be bad news for Trump, Yepsen said. Yepsen compared the race to the Democratic primary in 1984 when former Vice President Walter Mondale dominated the field. Mondale led two Iowa polls before the caucuses by more than 20 percentage points. Then he won the Iowa caucuses with 45% of the vote. But it was U.S. Senator Gary Hart, the second place finisher on caucus night with 15% of the vote, who gained momentum out of Iowa. Just a week later, Hart won an upset victory in the New Hampshire primary. Hart came in second, got a ton of media attention and energy, and went on to New Hampshire, Yespin said. Mondale, within a few weeks, was on the ropes. Could a similar situation play out for Trump in 2024? Is Trump going to win? Will it be big enough to impress anybody, or will people shrug, Yepsen said. Trump needs the storyline to be about Trump, not about this energetic challenger. The Trump campaign held an early December event urging supporters to caucus, playing instructional videos about how to register with the Republican Party, find their caucus location, and participate on caucus day on January 15th. Trump promised special white ball caps to anyone who signed up as a precinct captain. Bring as many people as you can to vote and do the caucus like nobody's ever done the caucus before, Trump told a tightly packed crowd. And we're going to win that. The more we win, they're going to see that signal for the November election. Only time will tell if he's right. College Board updates AP Black History Framework popular new course draws ire from conservatives by Fedra Tretton of USA Today. The College Board reworked the recommended course material for its disputed advanced placement course in African-American studies, sharing an updated framework Wednesday that largely preserves the current topics and expands on others and offers teachers options on subject matter that has drawn scrutiny from some conservatives. The course, first offered as part of a pilot program to high school students during the 2022-23 school year, covers black history through an interdisciplinary lens, touching on historical events and figures, as well as music, art, literature, and culture. It took about a decade to fully formulate the coursework, 
according to the College Board, which worked with more than 200 educators at colleges, universities, and other institutions across the country. And while it's proven wildly popular, 60 schools offered the course in its first pilot year, and about 13,000 students in nearly 700 schools across 40 states are taking it in the second year, 2023 to 24, the course also has been condemned by some on the right. Florida education officials saying the course lacked educational value rejected the class earlier this year. That decision drew a quick rebuke from black leaders in Florida and elsewhere. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, campaigning for the Republican nomination for president, has targeted teaching about racism, saying in 2022, we are not going to use your tax dollars to teach our kids to hate this country or to hate each other. Arkansas said students can't earn credit for taking the course. Some students involved have a different view. So far, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive, said Brandy Waters, Senior Director of AP African American Studies at the College Board. Waters, a New Jersey native who holds degrees from Yale, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and the University of Pennsylvania, said many students have called the course a transformative experience. It's been so meaningful to so many students, parents, and educators, Waters told USA Today. Students are really excited to learn things they hadn't learned before and something that resonates with their lives today. Teachers have come out of retirement to teach AP African American Studies, and administrators and coaches who don't normally work in classrooms have committed to teaching it, Waters added. The course has prompted conversations between parents and students, a dialogue she said many families have welcomed. People are telling us it's been deeply transformative and engaging. What's in the AP African American History course? The course, for which students can earn college credit starting this school year, depending on how they score on an end-of-year test, begins with a historical, cultural, and anthropological look at the African continent. It examines the African diaspora, trade, and indigenous religions and spirituality as well. The second unit deals with the transatlantic slave trade, including maps of the trade routes, forced migration, slave auctions, and the horrific journey that captured and enslaved people endured while being transported aboard cargo ships. Another section examines resistance aboard slave ships and anti-slavery movements. The unit also looks at the economics of slavery and the slave trade, but also rebellions, the creation of African-American culture and identity, and enslaved people in Brazil, Haiti, and among Native Americans and other indigenous communities. A unit on the Civil War, Emancipation and Reconstruction includes an expanded look at Black Family Reunification and the Freedmen's Bureau. It examines how Reconstruction-era advancements were rolled back, the early rise of white supremacy movements in the U.S., and the rise of Jim Crow. New materials include additional sources dealing with Black fraternal organizations, the creation of historically Black colleges or universities, or HBCUs, and the early influence of music, film, and art on Black identity. The Movement and Debates Unit has a new section on anti-colonialism and rising Black political movements, as well as a section on the role of African Americans in World War II, the Tuskegee Airmen, and the GI Bill. 
It also examines institutional and systemic racism, including redlining in cities like Philadelphia and Camden, New Jersey, school segregation and housing discrimination. The civil rights movement is examined through the lens of leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, and Malcolm X, but also Elijah Muhammad, Amiri Baraka, and Maya Angelou. The Black Panthers, Black feminists, and the burgeoning Black middle class are among the topics examined in this section. There is also an expanded section on evolving Black music with a look at the blues, R&B, hip-hop, and breakdancing. Other expanded sections examine how Black people are portrayed in modern television and films, Black people in sports, and Afro-futurism. At the end of the coursework, which is expected to be completed over at least 122 class periods, teachers have a week for further explorations. They can choose among the following topics, contemporary grassroots organizing, which includes the Black Lives Matter movement, reparations, incarceration and abolition, Black women writers and filmmakers, African-American art, Black foodways and culinary traditions, and local history. According to figures provided by the College Board, 45% of students who have taken AP African-American history had not taken an AP course before. The board said 80% of students now enrolled reported being very likely or somewhat likely to continue pursuing African-American studies, and 79% said they would consider enrolling in more AP courses and college-level courses after completing this course. We've reached the halfway point of our program, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. The first obituary today is for Randy Karachev, Dateline, Forestdale. Randy Lee Karachev passed away suddenly in her home at age 60 on November 26th. Born August 25th, 1963 in Woburn, she spent her early childhood in Billerica with her parents and four siblings, and teen years in Mississippi with her grandfather, Charles Hancock, and grandmother, Lucille Hancock, who she will join in heaven. She moved back to Massachusetts at age 19, where she fell in love more than once, had two beautiful children with Igor Karashev, owned a business, and built a life full of love, laughter, and colorful paint. Next door was James Barry, her children's godfather, who was in heaven waiting to embrace her as well. She was a bright light in the lives of everyone she encountered, especially to those she held so close. Her son Sebastian, 26, and her daughter Lucia, 22, who is a spitting image of her mother. Her children were her legacy, and she embedded a courageous spirit that they will carry with them wherever they go. Randy will be lovingly remembered by her father, Gaylord Bigelow, his wife, Dale, and Randy's mother, Lorraine Vitale, and her husband, her two brothers, and many other family members, especially her sister, Christine, who Randy was joined at the hip with, raising all of their five children on Cape together. Randy was a beloved aunt, or tante, to each niece and nephew she felt oh so honored to spoil. Before she was a mother, she traveled the world, collecting coins from every country, accumulating lifelong friends along with wild stories and flamingo figurines, flamingo hats, flamingo clothes, flamingo, flamingo, flamingo. She danced on tables and her laugh shook the trees. She was a force of nature and her generosity of spirit never went unseen. She did what she loved and loved what she created. 
She was the proud owner of Hats Off for Randy Hair Salon, where her artistry shined. Each client was her walking canvas, and she loved them all. Her proudest creation, though, was her two children, who will both say words about their loving mother on December 15th at the First Church of Christ on Main Street in Sandwich at 1 p.m. Come join us, grieve with us, and laugh with us at the fond and loving memories Randy Lee left with all of us. Arrangements are by the Nickerson-born Funeral Home in Sandwich. Patricia Ann Cabana, Dateline Forestdale. Patricia Ann Gory Cabana, born in Springfield, passed away peacefully in her home on December 2nd, surrounded by family and loved ones. Pat touched many people's lives and will be greatly missed. She was a graduate of Cathedral High School and worked as administrative assistant for the principal of Springfield Technical High School. She relocated to Cape Cod in 2000. She is predeceased by her husband, Fred, in 2021. Mimi was an avid reader of romance novels and mystery books, a plant lover of violets and orchids, and had a passion for thrift shops and yard sales. She spent many afternoons and evenings enjoying sporting events and activities for her grandchildren. She is survived by her loyal standard poodle, Freddie. Her children, eight grandchildren and 11 great-grandchildren. There will be no funeral services as the family respects her wishes of a private celebration of her life. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to the MSPCA on Falmouth Road in Centerville. Catherine Addie Priest, Dateline Eastham. Catherine Addie Priest, age 93, passed away at home and was lovingly surrounded by her family. She received excellent care from Broad Reach Hospice in her final months and days. She was born and raised in Gutenberg, New Jersey, and was the daughter of William and Anna Rigotti. She is predeceased by her parents and her brother William. She is survived by her daughters and six grandchildren. She was a great-grandmother to three and had many beloved nieces and nephews. Calling hours will be held at Nickerson's Funeral Home on Eldridge Parkway in Orleans on Sunday, December 10th from 1 to 4 p.m. A funeral mass will be held on Monday morning, December 11th at 11 a.m. at St. Joan of Arc Church in Orleans, followed by a private burial at 1.30 p.m. at the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Buzzards Bay. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to the Eastham Rescue Squad on the Mid-Cape Highway in Eastham. For online condolences, please visit the website of Nickerson Funerals. Gail Walsh, Dateline, Falmouth. Gail Margaret Brosnahan Walsh of East Falmouth passed away at the young age of 84 on December 5th after a short yet valiant fight with cancer. She was incredibly smart, compassionate, generous, funny, and selflessly devoted to the service of others. She was the beloved wife of John J. Walsh with whom she shared 60 wonderful years of marriage. The daughter of a firefighter and a teacher, Gail was born in Worcester on December 12, 1938, to Daniel and Hazel Mara Brosnahan. She grew up in Worcester with her two brothers, Dan and Kevin. Gail was a lifetime learner. She graduated from Regis College, magna cum laude, in mathematics, and spent a year studying math in Germany as a Fulbright scholar. Her time in Germany started a lifelong passion for chocolate, marzipan, 
Conditori, Wiener Schnitzel, and exploring other countries and cultures. She returned home to begin her 40-plus year illustrious career as a software engineer at Raytheon, creating defense systems. Gail married John and started a family. She was an amazing mother and, despite working full-time, was truly a hands-on mom. She raised her family in Chelmsford, but spent summers, weekends, and holidays at their old converted farmhouse in Alton, New Hampshire, with their four shy and quiet kids and the well-trained dog, Tippy. Everyone was welcome at her house, and plenty of amazing memories were made. John and Gail created an idyllic childhood for their family, filled with silliness, penny candy store runs, tennis, blueberry picking, gardening, stargazing, and, of course, hard work. After the chores were done, time was spent playing outdoors, water skiing, skiing at Gunstock, ice skating on the beaver pond, snowmobiling with the Pesnolas, weekend getaways with the Geary's, and family vacations. After rewarding careers, John and Gail retired to Falmouth, where she dedicated her time to her grandchildren and the service of others. She helped victims of domestic violence through her volunteer work at the Rose Fund. They joined Christ the King Parish and became part of the St. Vincent de Paul Society's food pantry. Over her many years at SVDP, Gail was an enthusiastic volunteer, treasurer, and president. She revolutionized the diaper section, donated dog food, updated the digital database, helped with food ordering, wrote a newsletter lauding the volunteers' hard work, and most importantly, financed a freezer for the food pantry. Gail was proud of her Irish heritage and spent countless hours on completing her genealogy tree. She was an accomplished knitter of Irish sweaters, an avid spider solitaire player, and loved a good spreadsheet. She put everything in Excel. Her blue ribbon-winning dahlias, her award-winning knitting patterns, her extensive Beanie Baby collection, and of course, the diaper allocation at the food pantry. She was loyal to her retail brands as evidenced by the many black dog sweatshirts and vineyard vine shirts her grandchildren have received over the years. Gail was a wonderful wife and mother, but her true love was being a grandmother to her eight grandchildren. She loved hosting Nana Camp when her grandchildren visited her often. She shared with them her love of vineyard boat rides, dinners from Roland, skipping rocks, ice cream, beanie babies, hummingbirds, puzzles, jelly cats, pool time, marzipan, jelly bellies, M&Ms, gardening, Krusty's pancakes, Kerrygold butter, and Italian subs from Center Deli. She was a worldwide traveler who traveled with her family, friends, and grandchildren to over 50 countries to include Ireland, the Amazon, Australia, and an African safari. She also loved being home, sitting around the pool listening to Irish music with her family, and a nice cold gin and tonic with two limes. She hated ignorance, mean people, sitting in restaurant booths, and paying for shipping on retail purchases. Gail is survived by her adoring husband, John, her devoted children, the outlaws, her beloved grandchildren, her brother, Kevin, and all her Moran and Brosnahan nieces and nephews, 
We cannot imagine a life without her indomitable spirit, but commit to honor her legacy of faith, family, and fun. A visitation will be held on Sunday, December 10th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations on Route 151 in Mashpee. A Mass of Christian Burial will be held on Monday, December 11th at noon at Christ the King Church in Mashpee. Burial will immediately follow on Monday, December 11th at 1.45 p.m. at the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be made to the St. Vincent de Paul Christ the King Food Pantry Fund in Mashpee. For the online guestbook and directions, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Partner Sick at the Thought of Hosting Girlfriend's Deadbeat Dad. Dear Carolyn, My girlfriend is an amazing person, despite having, in a lot of ways, a traumatic childhood with very little joy in it. Her dad left before she could even remember and rarely came around, and her mom worked a lot, so she spent a lot of time alone. The stories she casually tells me just break my heart. Like how for her sixth birthday, her mom scraped up enough money for a nice dinner and a cake, and her dad and his family were supposed to show for it. She and her mom sat there under the balloons and streamers, and nobody came. She always forgave him and invited him for stuff, but he no-showed her high school graduation and most Christmases. Now, we have a nice house together, and she wants to invite her dad and his girlfriend for Christmas Eve, but I don't want to. I've only met the man three times, so the chance they'll show is slim. But the thought of having to smile at him over Christmas Eve dinner makes me sick. Do I have to defer to my girlfriend, or can I tell her how I feel? Signed, Anonymous. Dear Anonymous, you can both defer and say how you feel. But phrase it thoughtfully, because first of all, you don't want to add your distress to the weight she already carries of just trying to be loved. If you can manage your feelings as your own problem, enough to be available to her, then yes to communicating both messages. Your feelings and your support are both important. That might sound like this. Given everything you've told me about your dad, it's hard for me to welcome him. That said, it's not about me. It's your family. So it's about what you want and need. Sign me up for Christmas Eve, tell me what you need from me, and let's keep talking so we're here for each other throughout. This may be phase one in a long reckoning with him, which he may never show up for. Your showing up for her is what counts. Good stuff. Dear Carolyn, I'm part of a group of college friends that has continued for decades. One was always the charming but unreliable player. Counted on to no-show events, even if he was bringing major portions of the meal, or to end up sleeping with another friend's girlfriend. We all just laughed it off as, oh, that's Tim. He married, had a kid, and about 12 years later showed up with a new partner, telling us he'd had an affair for several years, dumped his wife, and was marrying Lisa. We were told we had to agree Lisa was the best thing that ever happened to him and move her directly into our group. He'd cleaned out a good part of his kid's college fund to finance the new romance. I couldn't, so I stopped our friendship. Years have gone by. Lisa didn't last long, and some in our group rebuilt friendships with Tim, 
mainly the men, and some have not, mainly the women. Every so often, one of the guys will say I need to restart the friendship. Am I closed-minded? Signed, Anonymous. Dear Anonymous, he stole from his child. No, can the old-timers answer for that? We're complex creatures. We can, simultaneously, forgive loved ones' frailties and keep a principal distance from those we've outgrown or really don't like anymore. Today's Best Bets column is headlined, Bring Some Humor to Your Holiday Season with Jimmy Tingle, by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Spread a little laughter and love this holiday season with comedian Jimmy Tingle during his one-night show, Humor and Hope for the Holidays, at the Cape Cinema, as part of Payamet Performing Arts Center's Payamet on the Road series. Jimmy is all about humor, humanity, and he's just hilarious. Kevin Rice, executive director of Payamet Performing Arts Center, said, I've never seen people laugh as hard as with him. A Cambridge native, Tingle's show will take audiences on his journey from navigating the landscape of being an aspiring comic and street performer in the 1980s to reaching stardom on TV and even trying his hand in politics during his run for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. Plus comical, yet insightful commentary on today's events. It's so needed. Jimmy's kind of comedy that speaks to the human soul and conditions, Rice said. Uplifting is so needed now with Ukraine, Russia, Israel, Palestine, Hamas. It's much needed. People need to get up, breathe, and laugh. It's a solve for the soul. In collaboration with Tingle's charity, Humor for Humanity, Payment Performing Arts Center will donate $5 from each ticket sale to the family pantry of Cape Cod. Rice said giving back is part of Payamet's mission every day of the year. We're a nonprofit, he said, so if we charge money for a ticket, it covers our expenses. It's all a give. It's all a give what we do. So Jimmy's an exemplar of the tradition, you might say. Tickets for humor for the holidays are $25 to $35, depending on seat section, and can be purchased online at payamet.org. The Cape Cinema is located on Hope Lane in Dennis. Other events happening on Cape this week include attending the menorah lighting at the Cape Cod Mall. On the fourth evening of Hanukkah, join town officials, community leaders, and other members of the community for the lighting of the menorah at the Cape Cod Mall. Greetings will be made by town officials and community leaders dedicated to the event's overall message of peace and unity. Yak Dancing Group will perform Hanukkah music and a dance and acrobatic performance. Hanukkah foods, including potato latkes and donuts, will be served. The event takes place at 4 p.m. on December 10th and is free to attend. Learn how to make holiday drinks and appetizers at the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in South Yarmouth. Join Waterwheel Liquors and the Cultural Center of Cape Cod for a holiday cocktail, mocktail, and appetizer-making class from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. on December 12th. Chef Nicholas Kaplis and guest bartenders, Cultural Center Executive Director Molly Demuneri and Director of Sales and Partnerships Suchira Pollitt will be showing guests the perfect pairings to bring to your holiday dinner parties this season. Featured cocktails include lavender lemonade mojitos and prosciutto de melone with balsamic glaze. 
Tickets for the class are $39 and can be purchased at theculturalcenter.org's website. The Cultural Center of Cape Cod is located on Old Main Street in South Yarmouth. See the Falmouth Chorale perform For Unto Us a Child is Born, Handel's Messiah. As part of their 60th anniversary season, the Falmouth Chorale will perform For Unto Us a Child is Born, Handel's Messiah, on December 9th and 10th at John Wesley United Methodist Church. Andrew Jonathan Welch will direct the group as they welcome back mezzo-soprano Krista River and tenor Gregory Zavraki and introduce soprano Aurora Martin and bass Jeremy Haar. A chamber orchestra will accompany the chorale in their performance. Showtimes are 4 p.m. December 9th and 3 p.m. December 10th. Advanced tickets are $25 for adults, $5 for students, and can be purchased online at the Falmouth Chorale's website or by cash or check from chorale members and at Eight Cousins Books, Uncle Bill's Country Store, Market Street Bookshop, and Titcomb's Bookshop. Tickets bought at the door are $30. The John Wesley United Methodist Church is located on Gifford Street in Falmouth. Bring your pets to the Brewster Dog Park for a photo with Santa. Photos with Santa aren't just for the kids. From 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. December 9th, Santa and his elves will be at the Brewster Dog Park to take some holiday photos with Cape Cod's beloved pets. Photos are $25 and include a digital download plus free goodies from Agway of Cape Cod and the Polka Dog Bakery. Raffle prizes will be available at the event and all proceeds go directly back to the Brewster Dog Park. The park is located on Harwich Road in Brewster. Attend the Outer Cape Cod Corral annual holiday show, Glorious, in Provincetown. The Outer Cape Corral's annual holiday show, Glorious, returns this year for three productions from December 8th to December 10th. This year's concert includes a commissioned world premiere of Robert Grady's Reindeer Cantata and a performance of John Rutter's Gloria by 120 singers and a brass band ensemble. Catch the Outer Cape Chorale at 7 p.m. December 8th and 5 p.m. December 9th at the Provincetown Town Hall on Commercial Street and at 3 p.m. December 10th at Nauset Regional Middle School on Route 28 in Orleans. Concerts are free to attend and no ticket is required. See the New England Brass Bands, an evening of holiday brilliance at the Sandwich Arts Alliance. The New England Brass Band will perform a selection of holiday classics at its An Evening of Holiday Brilliance show at 7 p.m. on December 9th at the Sandwich Arts Alliance. Tickets are $25 and can be purchased at the Sandwich Art Alliance website. They are located on Main Street in Sandwich. Catch a concert at the Truro Public Library during the Winter Music Series. The Truro Public Library is kicking off its Winter Music Series with a performance from Outer Cape Bluegrass Quintet, Sugar Bucket, on December 9th. The series features six concerts, each at 2 p.m. on the second Saturday of every month from December to May. The lineup of artists is as follows. Sugar Bucket at 2 p.m. on December 9th. Chanton Collins with John Thomas at 2 p.m. on January 13th. Monica Rizzio, 2 p.m. February 10th. 
Troubadour Davis, 2 p.m. on March 9th. Julian Luada, 2 p.m. on April 13th. And Gabriella Simpkins, 2 p.m. on May 11th. The Truro Public Library is on Standish Way in North Truro. Columnist Sarah Lee Perils column appeared today in the paper and is headlined, Loving Little Benny is like Houdini when he hides in the yard. The police came to my house twice last week. You see, just recently my dog Benny has decided to disappear about two hours before dark. He hides somewhere remote in our three quarters of an acre fenced in backyard, which is majorly overgrown with towering thick vegetation. Benny does not move or make a sound, and he stays concealed for hours. You'd think a simple, Benny, come here, would do the trick. But the thing is, he won't follow any commands. He's not food motivated, so treats don't work. And he's not praise motivated, so excitedly saying, good boy, Benny, doesn't work. His motivation in life is to disobey me. When I say, come, he literally steps back. When I offer him his favorite cheese, he turns his head. When I say sit, he stands. Benny is not stupid. In fact, this contrary pooch is exceptionally astute. His mental acuity is right on target when it comes to doing the opposite of what he's expected to do. He's brilliantly defiant 100% of the time. My dog lives in bizarro world. I am, though, nuts about the little brown runt. He snuggles in bed with me, his scrawny body against my chest, his head on my shoulder. I want to protect him, to keep him away from bullies, to rub his belly when he's having a nightmare. Believe it or not, Benny loves me. Simply a look in his direction makes his tail wag. When I come into a room, he gets so excited you'd think I was the doggy Santa Claus. So each of those nights that I called the Barnstable police, their non-emergency number, my husband Bob and I had been searching for Benny since that late afternoon. And each time it was pouring rain and freezing. Benny wears a sweater and coat, but still shivers at 65 degrees. So in spite of being miserable, he's determined to stay hidden. I get frantic with worry when this happens. The first night that I called the station, Officer Scott Ledger came here. Thank God Benny got scared seeing a stranger in his territory and barked. That stormy night, the officer, who got drenched, went right through the sopping wet, massive overgrowth to get to Benny. The second time, after a four-hour search, Officer Jake White came. As I was crying with appreciation, he said that a kind soul has recently helped him with his dog, so he was paying it forward. I couldn't have been more grateful to both men. My new lifetime career? Making Benny visible. Wait until you hear this. It all started with a bell. But no, not any old little bell. A cowbell is what I needed. I swear you can hear Benny jingle jangling from a mile away. Did I stop at that? You know me. Of course not. I then called the amazing Geek Squad and asked for my favorite geek, Cassidy, for any technology that could help. She found the incredible Tile Pro at Best Buy. When Benny does his disappearing act, I tap on the Tile Pro app on my cell phone, then tap on the Find button 
At which point, get this, loud music resounds from a tiny pendant on his collar. I know you're saying, Sara Lee, what are you doing to your poor little dog? I'm not hurting him, I promise. He doesn't even notice that he's wearing a cowbell and a boombox. So did I stop at that? What the heck do you think? I hear you saying, put your dog on a leash, even in your big fenced-in backyard. I do, and I will, until I can guarantee his findability. But my spinal cord injury gets in the way of me walking, and Bob's out of shape, physically and mentally. So I'm driven to find the solution. Okay, here we go. Phase three. It's the most astonishing techno-gizmo of all. From Knox Gear, the Light Hound. Just wait until I tell you about this. It's a small harness with dazzling, multicolored, strobing lights as bright as an entire sky filled with blinding, pulsating, polychromatic lightning bolts. All right, all right. I'm feeling really defensive. So I have to tell you, Benny digs it. He doesn't care that he could light up Gillette Stadium. With Benny's flashing strobe lights, his supersonic sound system, and that clanging cockamamie cowbell, my once serene wooded backyard is now a loud, garish disco palace right out of Saturday Night Fever. Even John Travolta would be astounded. And so, as I'm writing this column to you, little Benny is sleeping next to my desk, safe and soundless at the moment. Soon I'll be under the blankets with him, feeling the tenderness of his small, precious face on my shoulder. I'll tell you, though, between the flashing bright lights and the blasting music, my pupils are in a constant state of dilation and my hearing's shot. Award-winning columnist Sara Lee Peril lives in a very bright and very loud home in Marston's Mills. With the exception of this month, her column usually runs the first Friday of each month, and she can be reached at speril at saraleeperil.com. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.